Time now I want to turn our attention to God's Word. And this morning we are in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. This morning we come to the end of our sermon series through the book of Daniel. And through this series we have uh, seen something of the exile of Israel uh, for their sins against God. And yet in the midst of their sin we also saw that God preserves a faithful remnant of his people. His people are never completely wiped off the face of the earth. They're never completely destroyed or assimilated into pagan cultures through exile. But rather, God preserves a remnant of his people from which to to rebuild and replenish in keeping with his promises. And there is perhaps, as we have seen, no greater example of faithfulness in all the Old Testament as that of Daniel. There is perhaps no other person who expressed such unfailing love and devotion and service to God during the entire course of his life, from teenager to old man, as it were, even in the face of death. And today we come to these final verses where we see Daniel being given his final orders. He, has been, he is being given the final instruction for how he is to carry out uh, the remainder of his days. Though his course has nearly reached the end of its run, he is nearly ready to go to his reward Nevertheless, God has a final word for him, and it is a word that brings together much of what we have seen in the rest of the book in a way that is meant to encourage Daniel for the end of his life. Today we'll be unpacking verses 5 through 13, but in order to get in the context, we want to begin reading at verse 1. So I would encourage you to follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Daniel, you'll remember, is in the midst of a, a vision of the end, and he says, At that time, he is told, At that time shall arise Michael the archangel, the prince, great prince, who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who Turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these things, of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. May God bless the reading of his word. In verses 1 through 4, 
uh, that we looked at last week, we see again this pronouncement of the end about those who trust in God will be perfectly refined from sin and will go to their reward upon death, eventually being raised back to everlasting life, while those who defy God, those who are wicked, will go to everlasting destruction. It is meant to be an encouragement to hope in God. And yet Daniel is also told that time has not yet come. It is not yet the, the time of the end of all things. And therefore Daniel is told that before the full triumph of God, there will be an ongoing adversity for the people of God. Even as Israel would go through adversity, even as the church, God's people today, goes through adversity, Daniel is told how to hold on to God in the midst of that adversity, how to look to him in faith, trusting his provision and care. And the adversity that is talked about in this book is very much a spiritual adversity. We've seen that in several chapters where uh, behind, as, as Daniel has been shown, behind the everyday goings on of life, there is a great spiritual conflict that is raging, even as the devil and his forces are, are seeking to destroy the people of God. And yet there is another kind of adversity as well that is in view, and I think is of great application as well. For there is not just an act of spirituality against God's people. There is a, an adversity that is born out of simply living in a world that has fallen. A world that is stained by sin and twisted beyond all of God's good design into something evil. We've got a taste of this again just this weekend. As a young man callously took the lives of 12 and injured many more in a Colorado movie theater. That is very much adversity because it causes us to wonder about life in this world, about what it's supposed to be like and how we are supposed to react, not just as human beings, but as God's people. How are we to think and to respond to such activity? This morning, whether it's from the pain of adversity directed against us specifically as God's people, or whether it is the pervasive pain of simply living, living in a world ravaged by sin, our passage shows us how we can take comfort and refuge in God. In fact, we see four ways that God cares for and ministers to his people during adversity. The first is this. From these verses, we see that God remembers his people when they experience adversity. God remembers his people when they experience adversity. Frankly, whenever we go through difficult times, whenever we go through adversity, one of the questions that comes into our mind, perhaps even those who are not even part of the church, are not even Christians, but nevertheless believe in God, whenever difficulty is experienced, one of the temptations is to believe that God has somehow forgotten us. That God has taken his eyes off of us and is completely unaware of what's going on, or worse, doesn't care what's going on. We read here in verse 5, Daniel saying that he looked and he, behold two, he beheld two others, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And in verse 6, someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the water of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Now remember what has taken place here. What we are reading about in this verse began all the way back in chapter 10, where God shows the ongoing pervasive attack that God's people are going to be under. And here, one of these angels looks, he's, he's been seeing everything that Daniel has seen. And almost spontaneously, he, he asks that the being clothed in linen here, the archangel, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Now think about that question that's being asked by this angel. He hears of the things to come. 
He, he sees a vision of the difficulty that the people of God are going to have to endure. And he asks, how long, Lord? How long will this be? I think if this heavenly being would have had a body, he would have had tears in his eyes at this point. He is demonstrating not just an intellectual curiosity. Oh, I wonder when that's going to happen. That's not the, that's not the way the question is asked. The question is, how long are they going to have to go through this? He is displaying a care for the people of God here. He himself is a, a created being, an angelic being, and yet he needs no salvation. For he has not sinned. He has not rebelled against God. He is righteous and of himself. And yet he sees those who have been redeemed, who are in need of redemption from their sin. And now he has compassion on them. He is reflecting concern for them. And the question is, how did he come by this? What has happened to cause this angel to have care and compassion for God's people? And I think the, the, the answer is, the right answer is that this angelic being has come to have care and compassion on God's people because he has seen God himself display care and compassion for God's people. He has stood amazed as God continues to show them kindness and mercy even when they fail to love him and serve them as they should. Think about how strange that would be for an angel. Even now, who... Peter tells us, uh, long to look into the things of salvation. Because on some level, they simply cannot understand it. They, they know their position in the world. They, they know how they are to worship and serve God. And they do not do that begrudgingly. They, they do not do that regretfully. They do it joyfully and completely and immediately all the time. So when God says, I need you to go and deliver that message, they are there and, and, and they are delivering the message and they take delight in doing so. And then they look at us. In some ways, more impressive than the angels because we have been created in the very image of God. We reflect him in a way they never will and yet we rebel against God. God, God has created us to know him, to live in fellowship with him, to worship him, to serve him. And we say, no thanks. I want to live my own life. I want to be in charge of my life. I, I want to be God over my life. How, how strange and absurd that must seem to them as they look down. And, and you, you can't help but think to some degree they, they, would come to, they would come to begrudge humanity. As the sea, of, the, the sea of people who do not give God the glory they deserve, the glory that they themselves dwell in the presence of all the time and see and take delight in. And they're just thinking, how can you, how can you, how can you miss it? And yet here they show God loving these people again and again and again. They see God never turning away from them. Even when they fail, even they rebel, he goes after them, showing care and compassion, saving them from their mistakes, redeeming them to himself. One of the things they have seen God do is never forget his people. In fact, the Bible Bible even gives us a glimpse of what the angels have seen throughout the panorama of history. Remember back in Genesis 7 when the the sin of humanity has become so great, God decides he's going to start over. He's actually going to start over. And so he, he saves just one family, the, the, the only righteous family that, that is there. He puts them into an ark. For hundreds of years, he's building this thing, and he's saying, hey, it's coming, it's coming. You, you better join me, you better repent. And they're like, ah, you're nuts. And, and they, get their, they get their just reward, which is death. 
And in fact, as you read the text, you're caught up in the narrative of Genesis chapter 7. You see uh, uh, underground caverns and, and lakes and rivers erupting up from the bottom. You see torrential rain coming down from the top. You see all kinds of volcanic activity. The world is in chaos. And you have Noah and his family and some animals, as it were, bobbing around on this, though massive, small compared to the scope of the world ship. And it seems as if, as you read the narrative, perhaps even Noah will be destroyed. And that you read in verse 1 of chapter 8, God remembered Noah. In fact, you can actually map out the entire story of Noah, and you will find this verse lies in the thematic center. From God's looking at the, the sinfulness of humanity until he restores Noah and humanity begins to rebuild, here is the key, the very center of this verse. God remembered Noah. A few generations later, God makes a covenant with Abraham and his descendants, a covenant promise to turn his descendants into a nation, to give them a land, and to bless them so much they would bless all the nations of the world. And yet, as the book of Exodus opens, it looks like the promise is about to end, to never come true, because they are enslaved. They are in bondage in Egypt. They have no hope and are calling out and groaning for help. And in Exodus 2, verse 24, we read this. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And then in Psalm 78, the people of Israel, we read, did not remember God's power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. That is to say, they have experienced God remembering them, and yet they didn't remember God. He saves them. He delivers them from Egypt. He leads them through a great sea. Destroying their enemies behind them. He gives them food in the wilderness. He allows their enemies who come and attack them to be driven out of the land and gives them safety. And yet they do not remember those things and rebel against him. And yet the psalmist says, God remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. In fact, in Psalm 136, it is he who remembered us, the psalmist says, even in our low estate. For his steadfast love endures forever. The consistent testimony of the Bible from beginning to end is this. God remembers his people. And that is no more clearly seen than in the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that all of human history, all of human history is the working out, is, is the implications, the good and the bad fallout of one verse in the Bible. One verse. Genesis 3.15. Humanity made in the good and glorious image of God has sinned and brought a curse into the world. And yet God promises, though they were tempted by this serpent to sin, he would one day send a son to crush the head of the serpent and to bring humanity back into glorious, sinless fellowship with God. All of history. I mean, that happens in chapter 3 of Genesis. How long has the world been around? Weeks? Months? Who knows? And yet, for everything else is the working out of this promise of Satan fighting against God and his people and of God triumphing over them little by little by little until Christ, his son, comes, takes on full humanity, bears the weight of eternal condemnation for the sins of his people, triumphs over Satan and the satanic forces. He triumphs over sin. He triumphs over death and is raised up again so that all people, all the people of God might experience the undeserved pleasure 
of knowing him and being redeemed to be his people. To go back to the original design, living in eternal fellowship with him. Loved ones, for thousands of years, if you claim the name of Christ, you were on the mind of God as he shaped history until the coming of his son. Do not ever think because one day, one week, a few years of adversity comes that he has forgotten you. Because God never forgets his people. He always remembers them. And in fact, he remembers them to such the degree that Daniel sees even this angel from the court of heaven has come to remember God's people, to have compassion on them because he has seen the level of remembrance and care and love and compassion of God, his king. The second thing that we see to encourage us is this, that God spares his people from the fullness of adversity. God spares his people from the fullness of adversity. Notice again the question of the angel in verse 6. How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? The answer comes back. As the man clothed in linen raised his right hand and he raised his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever. Now, you need to understand, this is like one of the most solemn things you could ever imagine happening in the Bible. Because the angel is not saying, you can take my word for it. He is, he is saying, in the most literal and godly sense, as God is my witness, as God himself will verify and bring about, this is, the, this is the reality of what is about to happen. He swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Furthermore, just a few verses later, verses 10 and 11, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the condemnation that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. Now at first, you know, if I was Daniel, I would think, that's not helpful. I mean, you didn't tell me, you know, <laughs> you didn't answer the guy's question. You know, it's like the politicians. They're asked a question, and they don't really want to talk about that. They want to talk about this. So they start talking, and, and suddenly they're answering this question that wasn't asked. You're thinking, wait a minute, that's not the question. If I was Daniel, I would say, that, you know, that, that doesn't really help me. Can, can, you, can you give me some more advice here? He doesn't give a precise time frame for when the end will come. Instead, he gives this vague reckoning of time. A time, times, and half a time. And yet, when he is more specific, he gets into the days... Although even here, I mean, let's be honest, I have, I have no idea why he would say it's 1290 days. But for those who go even beyond that, to the 1335 days, blessed are them. What does that mean? I mean, how are you supposed to understand? I don't know. And, I, and I'll defend why it's okay not to know in just a few minutes. But um, he does get back in here to what he's talked about before, this anticipation of Antichrist, Antiochus IV, that we've seen so much about. He is the one that brings about the abomination that makes desolate in the temple. He, 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 he's not a Levi, he's not a Jew, and yet he goes into the Holy of Holies because he thinks there's going to be this great idol in there, and he sees nothing. And he's like, what, what do you worship? And, and, and in order to subject the Jews, as it were, he takes the most unclean animal in their eyes, the pig, and he offers it a sacrifice on the altar. And it just completely destroys any spiritual morale of Israel. Uh, it, 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 it makes desolate this temple. From there, he gives a specific time frame, which 
works itself out historically. But notice this. It's marked in days. Uh, unlike the time, times, and halftime, we'll talk about it in a minute. Here, it's marked in days. And the two things I think we should take away from these things. First of all, God is in complete control over adversity. It's not some vague number that shows God has some idea about what's going to happen, but he's really unsure. No, it's a precise measurement. It's down to the day. He has determined how long it's going to go and no further down to the day. But more than that, the adversity is also cut short. It's a time, times, and half a time, which we've said before, as this has come up, should, should be understanding mean three and a half times, and seven being symbolic for completeness in the Bible, we should understand that there will not be a completeness to the adversity they're going to face. The, the, the wrath of this man, Tychus, of the spiritual forces, of all the things that will be, to be thrown against God's people, they will not be experienced in full measure. God is going to cut them short. And so as we go through the pain of life, one of the things we should remember is this. It's not as bad as it could be. It's not as bad as it could be. In fact, Jesus himself, in Matthew 24, when he talks about the end, he talks about how vicious and sad they will be, how terrible. And he says in Matthew 24, 22, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, for the sake of God's people, those days will be cut short. God says they will not run the full course that the enemy desires. I will bring them to an end in mercy on my people. This week I was reading about a man by the name of Arthur Wellesley. He was the Duke of Wellington. And one of the interesting things about Wellington is that he never lost a battle in his entire military career. From the time that he became a brevet general in the midst of battle when the leader of his army was killed in India through the amazing last battle of his life, he never lost. He was an amazing strategist and field commander. In fact, the last great battle of his life, if you've never heard of the Duke of Wellington, you've probably heard of this, it was against Napoleon at Waterloo. And what, if you know anything about history, you'll know, and if not, that's okay, I'm going to tell you. Uh, Wellington's strategy was completely defensive. It was simply, we're holding the line, and that's it. And so Napoleon is going to come up, and he is going to pound against us. He's going to pound against us. He's going to pound against us, and we are simply going to hold the line. There's no charge being yelled. It's simply hold the line, hold the line, because the plan was, the plan was that as he holds the line, the Prussians are going to come down and attack Napoleon's right flank and decimate him. They were supposed to arrive at the middle of the day. The engagement begins and Wellesley is holding the line with his meager army. One o'clock in the afternoon comes and no Prussians are to be seen. The clock keeps ticking. An hour goes by. Two o'clock, no Prussians are to be seen. Four o'clock goes by. No Prussians are there to be seen. And the whole time, Wellesley and his army is being hammered and they're being hammered and they're being hammered. And in fact, Napoleon breaks the line. He actually drives a wedge and divides those armies into two. And if you've read anything or seen anything on the History Channel, you know that's basically certain defeat for an army. And yet Wellesley doesn't give up. He says, attack from the sides then. But we will hold the line. And it's not until sunset, as, as Wellesley is literally getting ready to hoist the white flag, to, to surrender his forces and admit defeat, that suddenly the French forces being led are coming are being hammered by the French forces that the Prussians come across 
the horizon. They have been slogging through 35 miles of mud. They have been bogged down and have not been able to make it, but suddenly an army of 33,000 soldiers strong shows up and they completely decimate Napoleon. It is his Waterloo. Wellesley would later comment and say this, In 45 minutes, our defeat was turned to the greatest victory that we could ever imagine. So it will be with the people of God. Daniel is told in verse 7 that the people of God will be at their limit. They will be at the breaking point. Their strength will be broken and all will be lost and God will come and bring it all to an end. He will spare them the complete and total disaster that is about to befall. He will cut short the adversity that they are experiencing and he will triumph over evil. He does on that day, I think, what he does even today in our lives, and that is he mercifully spares his people from the fullness of adversity. Thirdly, we see that God purifies his people through the fire of adversity. God purifies his people through the fire of adversity. In verse 10, Daniel is told that during this time of waiting, the wicked shall act wickedly. Now, what's that supposed to mean? Well, I think that we're going to take that to mean that things will not get better and better as time goes on. Uh, in fact, it, it would, that used to be the real the, the, the thought. Uh, back at the end of the 19th century, there was this kind of utopian view of the progress of man. Scientific knowledge was growing by leaps and bounds. Society seemed to be getting better and better. And there was this belief that we were about to enter into the age of golden progress of humanity. And then World War I happened. And brought it into that thinking. What was once an even romantic view of war and battle gave way to trench warfare and mechanized fighting that literally shocked the world with its brutality. As the world was regaining its footing and coming to terms with itself, there was a second world war that took place. Suddenly no one was talking about the golden age of humanity's progress anymore. Because the reality is it doesn't matter how smart we get. We're not just brains were souls, and the soul of man is wicked and capable of very wicked things. And God is telling Daniel, don't look for things to get better, Daniel. Don't look for things to get easier. Now, in one sense, things are better because Christ has come and the gospel has changed everything. Once the people of God numbered in the millions and were centered around a small nation in the Middle East, now they number in the billions and stretch across every continent in the world. And where the people of God expand across the globe, things do improve on one level. Suddenly, there are things called hospitals. Do you know Christians invented hospitals? Suddenly, things like slavery go away. Do you realize it was Christians who ended slavery in the modern world? On one level, society improves. The church truly is salt and light among the lost people. But at the same time, evil ratchets up as well. Yeah, people do wicked things. But suddenly, suddenly you have people hijacking planes full of innocent people and flying them into buildings as bombs. Something that was completely unthinkable even a few years before. The point is, sin doesn't go away over time. And no matter how, how well Christianity can serve as a preserving agent and improve things on one level, sin is continuing to grow. And yet in verse 10, we are told not just the wicked shall act wickedly, but also that many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. 
In other words, just as the wicked are being wicked, the righteous are growing in righteousness. God's people are meant to be holy. If you have been with us on our two-year Bible reading journey that began last January, even the last six months, this is obvious by now. God's people are meant to be holy. As we bounce back and forth between Old Testament book and New Testament book, again and again and again, it is emphasized God's people should reflect God's character. And likewise, Daniel is told the same thing. Yes, wickedness will rise, adversity will happen, but God's people will be refined and made pure. And in fact, we see in the broader context of the Bible, it is in fact sometimes adversity that is the means of purifying God's people. In the New Testament, Peter tells the Christians in Ephesus, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a a refining fire that is meant to purify metals. It's what Peter has in mind here. But the reality is that that refiner's fire, it only reveals what's already there. So if you put metal ore in, the good stuff is going to have the dross burned off which will float to the top and you can skim it off, and the good ore, the purified stuff, is going to sink to the bottom. But if you just throw a big hunk of dross in there, guess what you're going to get out? Dross. And so the, the, the refiner's fire never makes anything pure. It simply reveals the purity of what is already there. And Peter says the exact same thing. He says you have this unshakable salvation from God in which you rejoice, and yet even now in the midst of that rejoicing, it's not here in its fullest sense. This is not the new heavens, the new earth. But we're not seeing the glory of Christ face to face. And so we're in this world, we are grieved by trials, but these trials prove the genuineness of our faith. They actually serve to prove and to encourage us that we really are the people of God. Because through these grieving trials, our faith is refined, its genuineness is revealed, and we are changed into an ever greater likeness of the glory of Christ. Practically speaking, that means more than anything else. When we encounter adversity and trials, the worst thing to do is run from God. I see so many people who, who claim to believe in God, who claim to be Christians, and yet when, when pain comes, they just want to hunker down and think they can get through it. And that's, that's not how you get through difficulty. That's not how you get through bad circumstances. That's not how you get through pain. You don't cut yourself off from all the means that God has established to encourage you and to build you up and sustain you through his word and through prayer and through that in the company of God's people. All of those things are meant to help us cling more closely to God, the one who we've already seen never forgets us, who never leads us, and is always working to refine us for our good. Putting our faith in him will actually cause us to let go of all the vain objects that are actually what we are putting our faith in, even though they have no power to save us. Think about it. This is why Jesus says it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the temptation is to put trust in wealth. 
This wealth has provided for me to have an easy life. It's provided for me to have things I can only dream of. Therefore, I will trust in this wealth. We may not actually say that, but we often do that. Furthermore, we might trust the things that wealth brings, power, prestige, and therefore we're not trusting God. That's what Jesus says the danger is of wealth. But the reality is it could be anything. You may not be wealthy. You could be dirt poor and still trust in something other than God to get you through circumstances. It may just be a good night's sleep. You may just think, if I can just have a good night's sleep, I'll be able to get through this. Whereas if I get a bad night's sleep, it's okay for me to be grumpy and sinful and hateful because I didn't get enough sleep. What are you trusting in? Sleep. I I just say by experience, this January I had the worst two weeks of sleep in my life. And I probably had the greatest ministry I've ever had. Why? Because I couldn't trust in sleep. I had to trust in God. Rolling around at night on dirt flooring and, and, and bouncing around in a truck in the day, I had to call out to God and say, God, I need you. God, I need you. God, I need you. And he was there and he met my need. And the gospel was proclaimed. Don't run from God in adversity. No, throw yourself at his feet and hang on for dear life. Because he will not only purify you, but he will sustain you through it. And that brings us to the last thing that we see. God sustains his people despite the struggle of adversity. God sustains his people despite the struggle of adversity. As we said before, chapters 10 through 12 form one long vision of this book. And after all that he sees, he says what some of you probably feel like in verse 8. Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. He hears what is being said to him. He hears even the explanation of what he's seen. He says, I don't understand it. I hear what's being said, but I don't understand it. He gets the big picture, I think, but he doesn't understand the details. God has given him a glimpse of the spiritual realities that lay behind the everyday workings of the world. He's shown him the, the ongoing spiritual battle that is raging against God people, God's people. He's shown him glimpses of his own glory that few people have had the privilege to behold in this life. He's been shown terrible things and glorious things. And at the end of the day, he just doesn't know how to put it all together. He just doesn't understand it all and how it's going to work itself out. Now, first of all, let me just say that should make us real humble. When it, when it comes to being precise in our definition of certain things in this vision. If it's confusing to Daniel, it's okay if it's a little confusing to us. Doesn't mean that we just say, I don't know, I'm not worried about it. No, I try to understand it, but if there's some parts, like for me, I don't understand the two numbers, I think it's okay. Daniel didn't get it. But beyond that, I think we can probably relate to Daniel's last question in the book as well. Oh, my Lord What shall be the outcome of these things? God, what does it all mean? How how is it all going to end? How is it going to come together? How do I make sense of all this? What should I do? And here he's told, Go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. One last time, Daniel is assured of God's sovereign care over his people, and he's encouraged to remain steady in his service until the end. Daniel is told, go your way to the end. In other words, keep faithful, stay steady, fulfill your ministry, do your duty, serve your king. That's what Daniel's told. Even after all that he's seen, he's not told, go sit on a mountain and wait. Spend years meditating on these things. No, he's told, get on with your life. Be doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. And remember what's coming for you, Daniel. Go your way till the end, then you'll be given rest. At the end of days, you will take your allotted place. Daniel has surely got to be in his 80s at this point, at least. You would think God would say, Daniel, you had a good run. You were a hard worker. Just go take it easy. It's time for retire. Didn't you know it was 65, Daniel? Come on. Uh, Go put your feet up somewhere. 
That's not what God says. He says, there's no time to take it easy. You, you keep going. Because after you die, that's the time you're going to rest. You, you'll be in my presence, in, in the bosom of the Father, and then you'll have time to take it easy. Then you'll have time to rest your weary soul. Until then, you do your duty. You serve as you've always served. But Daniel, there's even more than that to come. Because after you've died, after you've entered the rest of my presence, you're coming back. You're coming back. There's still more. On the final day, you will experience the resurrection from the dead and you will stand among the faithful in the place that I have prepared for you. This is the kind of sustaining encouragement that God gives us in the, in the midst of adversity if we let him. If we turn towards him, if we seek his face, if we call out to him in our pain, maybe even just one word, help, help, help. And he's going to encourage us and sustain us with thoughts like this, thoughts of the future that he has secured for us through the death and resurrection of his son. In John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, the hero, Christian, has just finished climbing the hill of difficulty and has come to rest for a while at the Palace Beautiful. Now, if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you need to know it's all allegory. And, and um, some of it's good allegory, some of it's, it's pretty in your face, you know, uh, like Mr. Talking Both Ways. You know, I mean, that's pretty obvious, you know, you're not going to listen to his advice. Here, the Palace Beautiful represents the church. It's a place of refreshment and, restru- and instruction where Christian receives a sword and a shield and he prepares to resume his journey to the celestial city, heaven itself. But before he sets out on the journey, they encourage him, no, stay one more night, stay one more night, stay one more night so we can take you up tomorrow morning you can gaze at your destination. Bunyan writes, when the morning was up, they had Christian to the top of the house and bid him look south. So he did. And behold, at a great distance, he saw a most pleasant mountainous country, beautified with woods, vineyards, fruits of all sorts, flowers also, with springs and fountains, very delectable to behold. When he asked the name of the country, they said to him, it is Emmanuel's land. Having seen the land of his Savior, Christian moves off on that journey, more determined, more confident, and more joyful on his way to heaven. And so shall we be, if we remember the promises that Christ himself has given. Do you remember what he told his disciples right before he went to the cross? It is good that I leave you, because I am going to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may dwell also. Loved ones, it doesn't matter what kind of adversity you're going through. It doesn't matter how painful and how raw it caused you to feel. Look to Christ and faith and remember, it's going to be cut short and it's not the end of the story. He has a future for you. A future that goes far beyond the shortness of this world. Daniel is a godly example to us. One who remained faithful to God through the most difficult of circumstances. Most of us will never be called to endure such things, yet even over the relatively small matters of life, the calling is the same. Go your way till the end, and you shall rest and stand in your, your allotted place at the end of days. We can only do that by looking to God in faith. And we've been encouraged to look to God in faith, because he is the one who remembers his people in adversity. He is the one who spares his people from the fullness of adversity. He is the one who purifies his people through their adversity. And he is the one who sustains his people through their adversity. And what should motivate us is the very thing that Jesus himself holds out to us. Namely the prospect of standing before our Heavenly Father on the final day and having him say to us, Well done, good 
and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Father, it is a great and wondrous thing to behold the life of Daniel. To see the ways in which you worked in his life. The ways in which he remained steadfast. In the midst of situations and circumstances we can only stand back and marvel at. And God, it is my earnest prayer that as we think about these things, as we think about Daniel as this book draws to a close, that God will not just remember Daniel, but we will remember you, Daniel's God. For it was knowing you and all of your power and your glory and your grace, it was knowing you in these ways that caused Daniel to be the faithful servant that he was. So we pray, dear God, that as we look to you, as we behold you and your character and your goodness, as we are reminded of the gospel of Christ and see your glory there, that likewise we will be encouraged to love you and serve you faithfully all of our days, even as Daniel did. God, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.